Hello and welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from Kingston University in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. In this episode, I'm joined by David Grandorge, the photographer, educator and architect. David's influence has been extensive, both as a teacher, but as also somebody who, through his lens, has managed to capture a particular way of seeing the quiet work of a generation of British architects working in London and elsewhere. In our conversation today, it was suitably wide-ranging, varying from his education, both living on the streets and then in universities, how he came to teach architecture, and how he himself sees the relation of intuition, rigour and process in the making of work. I hope you enjoy the podcast. David, thanks for joining us here in Kingston. Um, To start things off, how did you... How did you arrive in the position you are now as this photographer, educator, academic? I mean, where did you learn your trade? It's into, I mean, there's a couple of kind of questions and implications in, in that. Um, let's say, uh, you know, sometimes people start off in life with a kind of clear trajectory of where they'll be. And... Uh, Mine's not quite like that. Uh, I suppose I'd call it a kind of thesis by accretion. <laughs> yeah, um, a kind of way of saying, well, you know, what ideas does one want to work in the world? And then you kind of, through various experiences, then think of where you are. But maybe we'll speak about that later. Uh, kind of operationally, uh, I mean, I finished um, studying in 1996. I'd, uh, uh, before I was in architecture, I'd left school very young and uh, lived on the streets and um, but also around homes for mainly handicapped adults and uh, world of drug users and uh, you know young man trying to save the world kind of and was that so living on the streets this was born out of poverty yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. well kind of kind of kind of circumstance as well as poverty i mean i could have sort of not been homeless, but I didn't want to impose myself on kind of others, and I was very kind of uh, dependent. Started off when I um, travelled around Europe uh, by train, and then I came back. To, I said you stayed on the streets of Paris for three months. That was choice. And, and did you connect with squats, or I strangely did for a little while, but later. Um, and then it was staying in kind of hostels beside Wormwood Scrubs. And, I mean, this is kind of big personal history. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I mean, there are things, but what I was trying to say was that, you know, sometimes you get to university fairly early and you get on with life. And mine had these things intervening in between. I should also mention I work for a bank. Uh, I understand a lot about how that system works. And I'd also worked in kind of cold stores. Okay. Uh, work with distribution, uh, which kind of made me think like a polymath, but also getting get on with everyone from every walk of life. And then um, it was actually in Paris where I'd been with a friend and visited La Roche uh, by Le Corbusier, and I was kind of astounded by this use of space. This is nothing that was part, was part of my nascent mm. experience. And um, became kind of interested, self-taught myself in the kind of history of art and architecture. And then um, started studying because I thought you needed all these things to study. Mm. 
I then realised I knew as much and sometimes more than the lecturers that I was being taught <laughs> by in this kind of way, which actually must have been very annoying that this kind of quite mouthy, precocious kind of 24-year-old was was studying, but maybe it brief life into the institution as well. So I was there, uh, I signed up to the Polytechnic of North London, which became a university. Um, worked with um, Gordon Claren, who was a teacher there, on building um, mainly on uh, working as a project architect on uh, an Afro-Caribbean youth centre in Heysen Green in Nottingham. It was a very tough kind of inner city mm-hmm. area. And it's kind of interesting about being one's role as an architect in that place. You know, it was there, I was there on site to check, of course, everything that the contractors were doing mm-hmm. along the way in terms of quality of build and so on. And, finding all sorts of things where they hadn't kind of put in insulation by knocking a broom against the plasterboard seat. Yeah. Really kind of old tricks of like, you know. Um, those kind of powers actually have been taken away from architects almost now, you know. Yeah. But that was then and I loved working with um, kind of builders maybe too much, I think, and an architect needs a degree of separation. You know, you can't quite be friends with everyone. But while I was there, I was also kind of like playing... Um, you know, there was a snooker table in, and I was like, wow, a snooker table. You know, full size. I, full size table. So I said, can I join in? And then, kind of surrounded by a group of Nottingham Rasters, uh, I had my highest ever break on a snooker table with my first, first go. I got 29. And then, <laughs> and that was that, well, there was this kind of like, wow, who's this kind of like, Weirdo kind of white skinhead who's kind of like very <laughs> <laughs> poor. Of course, after that they whipped me, but um, it was that kind of thing. I was very good at sort of like you know, you came back and then it's like you know you can get on with your client group. I learned those things, so. mm. and then um, I was working on other projects with Gordon for a, a health centre in Bromley by boat, and then back um, I went to Cambridge then to study with. Peter Beard, that's one project I'll be showing tonight, and then um, with Eric Parry, my fifth year. And then kind of coming out, uh, I've been promised a job by some famous architects, I won't say who they are, uh, <laughs> and which didn't come about, which, you know, now I'm kind of grown up, I understand the kind of cash flows of yeah. there's not enough money, there's not enough money. Yeah. You know, you don't go around taking people on on a bet. So that moment, I was. Uh, this is where this kind of polymath thing just started. It's an accident. So I was asked by Adam Mountson to run first year um, at London Met, and this developed into 20 years of teaching. I never imagined yeah. it would be like that. Simultaneously, I was uh, subbing for my great friend Edward Woodman. He was a photographer who worked with artists mainly and when I was an undergraduate I, I met him and said look can I carry your bags on shoots this was just really a chance to meet Rachel Whiteread and Damien Hurst mm. and Bill Viola and you know and Helen Chadwick it was kind of uh, you know he knew I had an ulterior motive <laughs> kind of plus against the world together and it was I learned a lot about very complex uh, photography on film background and then he also worked with um, Zaha Hadid on photographing the models. And when he was away, then I started subbing, doing this. And then 
through various things. I just kept getting asked. I never interviewed for my job. I just suddenly started getting asked to do work and it kind of went through kind of borrowing equipment and renting and stuff and then building it up. And then I should also say that during that time I was also practicing as an architect doing bread and butter stuff, you know, kind of neat extensions mm -hmm. for people. Also a lot of collaboration with long-term friend Brian Greathead, who has his practice Manlo and White, named after the two Barrys, and it's still the firm's name. And uh, I was Mr. Manlo uh, in that work that <laughs> yeah. went on. But me and Brian also ran nightclubs together for seven years. So it was this kind of like really using the city as a kind of, you know, for all its possibilities. Yeah. As well, and I think that's kind of joy about you know at the age of thirty of finally kind of being in London, but kind of being there on my own terms. Yeah, you know? and like I'd always you know I'd been there on not on my own terms, it's on the streets at seventeen, and yeah, yeah, kind of really, and we'd landed in Shoreditch, a very kind of rich moment at this moment of changing the city. Um, I was just going to say it was a good time to be earning. A reasonably low salary in London. I think, I think actually, I mean, it's an absolutely perfect question in relationship to what's available to young people now. There was the room to make mistakes, and I think that's really, really important. Uh, um, the kind of idea that your practice is defined fully by your education, I think, is a kind of myth. I think there yeah. are many, many things. The, the importance of what one learns in one's education is some things that you bring with you immediately. But there are some things that you know only make sense ten years afterwards. Yeah, you know. And meanwhile, you're there and you're a creative being, but you also you know you have rent to pay, you have tax to pay, you have to eat, and you have to. Well, I have to smoke as well. Um, and <laughs> that was so cheaper then as well. Though, that was cheaper. Yeah. So there was a, there was a kind of space to that you could. Do that rent in that part of the world was very low at the time and it's still kind of a, a, a strange place and um, it was but it was very very rich you could see this world kind of building building up but it that was very very important to the kind of possibilities of being able to define how you would practice in the world yeah to have that space and I really do understand for this generation that the kind of requirement to be professional is actually far more immediate you mm. know, to because of because of land values in cities in Europe and London being one of the worst cases of that. That's very And were you part was there kind of a community of you guys that were talking about all of this uh, being the, excited about a, 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 a community is kind of interesting because what it, the, the community which you're so used to, at kind of college to being kind of architects. I mean, architects more than any other subject kind of hang out together. And yeah. when they hang out, they talk about their subject. You don't generally do that. Maybe fashion people do. Mm. And what was kind of interesting was at that moment, the relationship, you know, Alexander McQueen had his kind of studio there. I'd run a quiz night and kind of he'd walk in and you know, do things. And so were a lot of the, you know, now. I mean, history has written the YBAs into history in a very particular way. But then they were just kind of, well, they weren't just who they were. They had some kudos around them. And yet they were still, you know, not, not big stuff. Yeah. 
There was a lightness of spirit. Yeah, and yeah. there was that sense of any, anything could happen would come in uh, the kind of recession of the early 90s. And then I suppose it did kick in with kind of new labour that we thought kind of a generation of people who believed in sort of social justice, mm. that this might be kind of, kind of served in one way. Um, and there have been some very good effects from that government that people don't want to talk about, obviously, because of their concerns uh, about how they're communicating the relationship to the war in Iraq. Yeah, but it's true, isn't it? We tend to... I mean, this is in relation to other things as well, I'm thinking, because we were talking earlier on about how, for a period, all of modernism was written off, and of course there were great successes along with great failures, and this tendency in the immediacy to reject everything and not hold on to the valuable things. We put it back, I mean, this is put it away from kind of, kind, of, kind of personal history to these larger issues now. I think the, that, that kind of crisis of, of an architectural understanding during the era kind of where they mm-hmm. were um, was, was very, very um, you know, difficult time for the practice. You can see uh, kind of many buildings of that era we see not um, a lack of effort but a lack of confidence mm-hmm. um, and also sometimes uh, I think it was beginning which is something that came from America so kind of cynicism about kind of commercial practice we've always had a kind of commercial practice those who worry more about kind of you know profit margin and quality there's always that in the world mm-hmm. but I think it became kind of systemized in a kind of kind of way there was also, it's about the time you come up, I mean, a lot of buildings from the 90s just suffer from, you know, very, very poor kind of window systems, mm-hmm. which of, you know, it's about, I mean, so much of practice in that time has come about, you know, what products one uses and assembles together, rather than what one designs from scratch, That's which is another kind of you know, move and shift in, in, in how we've kind of kind of practice now, which is sort of sitting under this kind of idea about the confidence of the profession and how they're designing and who they're designing for. Yeah. And also what language is used as well. But isn't it interesting that also, while that's true, that it's at those gear shifts we sometimes also get the ambiguous masterpieces. And I'm thinking here of, say, the listen or later Walsall, you know, these places that they are interested in, the systems of construction. Two really key moments in London. Um, I'm privileged to work with both Tony and Caruso Sinjin. I consider them to be um, kind of allies, mm. kind of friends. And um, I think Tony, I, I, I don't think people can really understand this at the moment, how important Listen Gallery was to to kind of kickstart a conversation in London, which was aside from the kind of theoretical noise of the AA mm. at the time, which was aside from historicism, yet was very interested in context. Yeah. And yet also use the thing about the listen, which is so exciting, is that it's firmly ingrained in its urban environment. It connects two kind of streets through it. So yeah. rich like that. It's like layering the 19th century city, adding layers to it. 
it was really powerful in connecting, and this was really seen in Christopher Perkins' photographs, about this kind of connection with the school. I mean, Tony was having a conversation between the facade yeah. and the, 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 the school across the way. And also the market, and the way this really does, I mean, there were pragmatics about how we got art in there, these large sliding elements. But there was also a sense of kind of abstraction, which wasn't all about good proportions. Yeah. And there's a thing that I've heard Florian say years later about kind of, uh, he says, you know, the awkward friend. And I think there is this kind of very interesting awkwardness in kind of compositionally, which you only unravel after many visits. And that's something I think that's very important to a small gallery. It's one that you've got clientele coming back to, and then the building reveals more and more complexity. Uh, kind of in its language, as, as you see it. But the first time you see it, there's a kind of awful problem. Mm. But yeah, there was this confidence about using a kind of modern language. It was white and grey, and had glass and steel, and wasn't kind of about people's detailings. Um, it's a building that has is, is, um, done the listen kind of very, very well as a, a kind of have you said a contemporary way, a kind of brand, you know. Yeah. The kind of image of the gallery is very strongly imprinted in, you know, and for a for a private gallery. Yeah. Uh, it's not a normal private gallery. I mean, the uh, Nikki runs it. So very very astute uh, diva. But it also seems to kind of communicate an essential Londonness of a particular type. You know, I mean, I remember as a student. I mean. Well, it's possibly true that it's not fully uh, celebrated in terms of its influence. Its influence has been profound. I mean, I know in Ireland when it was first published and we first saw it, that was an electrifying event. Because of all the things that you've said, it was a way to historical reference and context without pastiche. It was also incredibly skillful on a non-theoretical kind of human level, a very human building actually. Mm. It, it, very human, yeah. I mean it, it deals, it has what's really interesting, the kind of intimacy of the house at moments and yet yes. the scale of a, a kind of art space. And the theatricality of some kind of, yeah. So, so these, this kind of ability to kind of provoke a kind of intellectual and emotional response to, to kind of built space was kind of proved in this case by Cantoni. And he was there, you know, feeding off Caesar, yeah. off a lot of kind of early Swiss production. Um, I do know, oh my gosh, I let out the bag. I don't see much <laughs> history. Um, Jacques Herzog had strangely kind of, kind of created Tony's project for him. He had a balcony on it at the... On which facade? On the front facade, like a kind of, like a corp. Okay. Kind of projecting kind of balcony at the the top of it. I mean, it's kind of interesting that I think he was playing somewhere between between Le Corbusier, kind of a little bit sometimes of, of Lowe's, I think that came a little bit later, but it's still there. Mm. Mixed with a bit of Sol the Wet, uh, uh, you know, it's yeah. kind of, it's, it's very, it has this very ethereal kind of quality, this kind of shallow depths and whether it's to do with the kind of um, a London thing, it was, it was, what was great about it, it was a building that was actually European. It was kind of intellectual building, which is kind of anti-British mm. in some ways. And yet, it had the ability to soak up the mess of London 
quite brilliantly. Yeah. So the way it adjusted its scale of the facade in relationship to everything around it is very, 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 very clever. And then on the side street, it's far more kind of shop fronty. Yeah, like a traditional. So it's, it's the way that it takes up this, it kind of soaks up contacts, which I think good buildings can kind of really do that. He showed that this can be done. I mean, Caesar's amazing about his, you know, he just, he, the ability to look closely at what's around you before you start designing, I think, was kind of proven as a kind of methodology. And that was, I suppose, postmodern actually. That was the, the correction to modernism, was, this is not tabula rasa. That there's things that modernism was trying to destroy, the kind of mm. the traditional European city, was actually, you know, this absolute kind of high point of human achievement. And I'm not talking about the monuments, I'm just talking about the brain yeah. of cities, the ability to operate, the ability to work between kind of monumental and human scales, the issue about having the right amount of light in the street, the ability to want to walk everywhere. Yeah. The have, having some ambiguous spaces, having compression and release, and then I'm not a feeling that the city is, you know, the cities are always a consequence of economies, mm. money of, of private development. But we get to the point sometimes where we're feeling now cities are a consequence of two things. One is the of kind of big money, mm. and then kind of two is the kind of vagaries of planning, which often require kind of big money now, you know, for planning game to allow a school to be built, mm. you know? Mm. Is this the way we you know we'll be doing it? And it's the complexities of late capitalism have allowed for this to happen. But going back to when, when Tony was there, it, it was more than that building, it was part of, uh, of course, there were mythical conversations. Aaron and Scalbeg referred to a group of architects around him as the Whispers. Yes. And this was, of course, um, Jonathan uh, Surgeson and Stephen Bates. Jonathan Wolfe and David Edge were yeah. uh, uh, around. And Jonathan, of course, who's, who's, who was uh, originally a student um, at Kingston. Great glass. You know, yeah. yeah. And, um, and then also kind of Adam and, and Peter. And of course, there was this fascination with the, the Smithsons. I have a strange relationship with the Smithsons, and I've, I've recorded many of their buildings. Some of this was uh, uh, commissioned uh, uh, architecture should weave. It was Peter Sinjin who recommend, recommended me to record uh, existing, like a reportage on existing kind of Smithsons over for um, a kind of special issue they were doing. This was very generous of Peter. I mean, they're, they're like, yeah, these people really helped me along, yeah. you know. Because as soon as I kind of made this work and it was there and it was very funny, you know, going, um, architecture should we went bankrupt, I never got paid. This film, and I had friends take me up to, to Huntsdown Coast, you know, in bitter weather, you know, minus 10, kind of photographing, you know, this minus 10 wind coming over, and it was. You know, I was young, I couldn't afford a good coat and stuff, you know, I was, it was, but I made, you know, I had to get the photographs. And I kind of, kind of, you know, seeing kind of Huntstanton School in the Christmas holiday, I think I made my, my kind of first photograph, which sits outside of my professional life as an image, which can exist in a gallery or mm. a book or have another life beyond, 
you know, it's like absolutely defining my practice. And it was a picture of the boys' dressing room. Um, and, and what was kind of amazing was one was that there was the ability to kind of construct a pictorial space like a kind of Vermeer. Yeah. This was something that, you know, I mean, the Smithsons, you know, they, the way they plug culture into their buildings is really interesting. And, but there was also this melancholy because it was Christmas and there were all these kind of these socks and, and trainers left over. You know, like how, I mean, I'm the father of, of teenage boys now, so I know the ability of a 14-year-old boy to leave something behind, you know. And there was this kind of like, this melancholy, but also, also a kind of almost patheticness of it, mm. you know. And then a kind of joy that this is real life. This is seeing this famous building and you can throw shit at it, and it's still good. Yeah, you know, it's still magical. And so seeing those buildings, I went to Sutton House. I recently found some legs which I've scanned of, of, of that, which are actually just amazing. It was things I couldn't afford to process at the time. And then kind of Robin Hood. And Robin Hood was kind of interesting because it's it's one of those, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a, a building that's so difficult to cite. You, you're dealing with this major arterial, yeah, kind of infrastructure around it. So the first kind of mode of defence is these kind of concrete pieces which could almost be in downtown Beirut. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And which are about deflecting kind of sound. And the kind of escape stairs inside it, which could be called Pyrenaean in some ways, but they're, they're just too dark and too... And also these things are about kind of management. And yet it's a sculptural masterpiece. In some ways, it's been a social masterpiece as well, which I think has been really not supported by Tower Hamlets. The apartments themselves are, you know, if I can live in an apartment like that, they're so beautifully planned. But it was, of course, a kind of flawed project. Yeah. And it was flawed because it was about the expectations of modernity. And of course, uh, Peter had gone back there and we regret, you know, saying, you know, we thought everyone would be using libraries, you know, not sitting watching TV or. Mm. What, what are the kind of the lasers that allow this? Well, I think you could reprogram the building in terms of kind of who lived there and solve the problem immediately. Yeah. Uh, by that I mean uh, mixed tenure, people of different intelligences, creates incomes, the ability to support each other with their different skills that you have. You know, mm. the skill of um, someone with not much money but ability to be streetwise. It's very different from the person who's very good at speaking to the bureaucrat or the local authority, but would know how to deal with a group of slightly pushy kids. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it needs this kind of wonderful kind of mixes, and that's, it's, it's one of those things about, but what the, the Smithsons, the engagement, I think, of this group, the whisperers with the Smithsons, of course, getting back to this, I'm digressing so much at the moment. It's a nice digression. Um, but the, 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 um, yeah, firstly, there was this generation from this group of people to me. I started working with them, but part of it was sharing this kind of interest in, in the Smithsons. And the interest was not just in what they built, of course, it was about how they wrote, mm. how, they, how they looked at life. I think they were the first kind of architects, um, first kind of British architects, wanted to find something which was, which was kind of British, mm. which was really interesting because they were kind of playing on kind of, you know, me's and eames were kind of, they were sampling, you know, yeah. early kind of pop sampling in some way. They came out of pop and yet their kind of work was kind of austere and yet it's full of idiosyncrasies 
I yeah. mean, I mean, I look at this picture of, of Southern House and you see this kind of beam crashing in to a lintel halfway over a door. It's fantastic. And the kind of he was the, it was kind of like early Jean de Vilda. Yeah, that, that some of the Smiths. Oh no, one hundred percent. Yeah, and so they the, the kind of references both into how they kind of built some of the kind of tectonic ideas, but the kind of thematic ideas, the way they connected with history and place, wasn't sort of you know in the history books about modernity. It didn't kind of yeah. play, it was all kind of rational stuff, and they were far weirder than that. But I think the thing that Peter was really good at was observing very closely. And I think that Alison was the smarter of the two. I did have the privilege of meeting them both. Um, sadly, um, I have to work out whether there's some connection here. Uh, I met Alison when I was a second year student. I asked her into lecture. She arrived two and a half hours early, so I had to sit with her drinking tea for two hours, which was, I was absolutely starstruck. Mm. And I thought this was brilliant. I felt she was getting bored of me after about an hour. I bet she wasn't. But yeah. And um, but she would. She spoke about wonderful things about living among trees. About we were just kind of having a tea, and there was a kind of tree outside the window. I never thought about what it meant to have a tree outside the window until she said this. She gave a very intellectual um, essay about working in uh, Iraq, which I, nobody understood. Um, and then. She she um, she left three months later. She died, and then uh, I was newly out of kind of college operational in Shoreditch, as I was mentioning earlier. And then uh, I was asked by the twentieth century to give twentieth century society to lecture at the Coulter Institute, and it was a lecture called the New Pornography, and it was about uh, people's new fascination with kind of interior design flushness in bathrooms and kitchens and designer furniture and then suddenly having clients who were, would come with these but they pull them out from under the table <laughs> and say to their architect what do you think of that and the architect going no 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 you don't you know that that kind of that kind of way that that suddenly there was space magazine with the guardian there was a way that sort of design was becoming kind of sexy mm. And, and I found it quite pornographic in a way. You know? yes. and, and so I talked about this kind of, this, this fascination. And then uh, it was great, Peter Smithson, uh, I, I didn't have email back then, um, but he'd, he'd emailed um, the 20th century said, saying how much he enjoyed the lecture and they passed that on to me. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> Peter Smithson likes my lecture. So I was kind of feeling really kind of like, it's okay, I'm, I'm allowed to think what I think, my own ideas, bring it to an audience, even if it's a bit provocative. And yet, he can kind of understand that there's quite a serious kind of attitude here to think about what does it mean to build for rich people? What does it mean to, you know, that, that kind of moment when you're kind of selling yourself to the devil almost. And anyway, he died three months after that. So I was responsible for the kiss of death for, <laughs> for two great architects. I was then asked to write their uh, obituary by Architecture um, Today, which was, was really interesting. And then um, Soraya and uh, their daughter, uh, they were amazing parents as Masons. Most children of architects are utter fuckers.
and uh, but they were great parents. And you can see this actually in the historic photographs where Alison's drawing and she's rocking Soraya underneath her, her in her basket underneath her drawing board. <laughs> you know, this is a powerful positive feminist yeah. image. Yeah. It's really, really powerful stuff. And they're great. they're all lovely the children. Um, Samantha Simon, who works for Richard Rogers partnership, he's a director. There. I didn't know he was in, he was in charge of the airport in Madrid. Wow. Well, okay. Yeah. And uh, and, uh, and it was really sweet then after they died. Um, Carmen Pinos, uh, sort of, they were Morales and Pinos used to be a couple, and Morales uh, was in love with Peter. He yeah, been in yeah. Venice, walked around Venice with him and great moments when Peter was old and talking about something ends up falling in the canal and being rescued by <laughs> But isn't that, that makes so much sense because in the way that you described how the Sutton house is a kind of foreshadowing of Jan de Wilder, it makes sense that uh, Marias and Pinos would have been interested in the Smithsons in a similar delamination of tectonics. That's I think that's, I think that that's a lovely way of putting it, the delamination, the kind of... Um, it was a way of kind of understanding kind of firmness and commodity in some way. But then say, hold on a second, we, I mean, there was a kind of freedom that architects had in terms of regulation then. It was, it was a less regulated world. But he was one of the few to start asking questions about ordinary materials. Like you could work with block and brick. This is maybe where the British thing comes from it, yeah. It didn't yeah. have to be like poor a lot concrete. of the kind of poor concrete, which was happening with all the people who were building in, you know, the college buildings in Oxford and Cambridge. And, course then yes the estates which were which wasn't poured it was all about panels yeah um and systems and then to find this kind of way of 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 of, of kind, of, kind of pulling apart the kind of kind of accepted language of kind of tectonic geary was very good at that yeah, as well right. yeah. in the 70s i mean i did i mean if you're talking about you know you know what what do i love in architecture right a kind of um, you know really powerful moments for 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 me is like you know Upper Lord. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Geary's house. Yeah. Have you been? Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I haven't. Uh, the Lapity House by by Lackland of Sound. The first oh. time they did kind of double space. You know, it's really steel frame plywood and yeah, you know, and and polycarbonate, and then. I think there. I think Mary Jersey's, uh, Jersey Van Heer's house in in Ghent, and they all kind of have. I mean, they all have kind of quite different. You have different kind of emotional kind of response to, to them, but what they have in common is this kind of, this sometimes violent but often kind of gentle questioning of tectonic rules, mm. and how you bring things together. So there's a lot actually kind of around the conversation between kind of space and detail. Mm. In, in, in those buildings. Um, for me, the strongest moment, I, I suppose, when I was thinking about that delamination, I like this idea, was, was is, is kind of, kind of geary, where, where there's this kind of moment of kind of frozen construction. Mm. This idea of just seeing kind of the trapped houses being built, the timber frames there, and just kind of, we have a language here, and it's in, we're in denial about it. And that ability as well to take from kind of Rauschenberg, uh, you know, you could take a material or a low material and make it high. And a lot of what you're talking about when we're discussing all this is about people able to see, fundamentally able to see things. Like, so in this case, Gary seeing 
construction technology as yeah. in, as it's being made and harnessing it to make a language or say um, the comfort with which the ambiguity of how uh, upper lawn sits on and in and destroys and makes the wall you know so this it is it, much richer than um, than one would first assume and it's born out of an acute way of looking one that understands that it's not sufficient to see but it's sufficient to interrogate that further such that that might become an empathetic connection because what's delightful about the buildings you're talking about is that they're explicit to the point that one can see in a way what the architect saw or wanted you mm. to see there's something happening mm. there on the level of an empathetic connection with work process which isn't necessarily as possible with other types of work. And it's not to say that it's better or worse, but I share your enthusiasm for it. But I think there's this thing we, you just mentioned now, which is about this, this, this process that from, from a kind of a, a design process to a proposition, to it being in a well, to it becoming a ruin, or being mm-hmm. destroyed in the case of Robert Hood Gardens. And it's about our relationship between designing which is a certain kind of mental kind of act. Sometimes it's it's reimagining spaces in our head. Sometimes we, I mean, sometimes we kind of see them. Mm. Sometimes we don't see them until we kind of draw them out on the paper or put the model together. There are many what ifs within mm. that, and some of these things are functional, and some of them purely we move into a world beyond function to not quite a dream space which is the space as humans we'd all like to, to inhabit all the time. But the world's real. Mm. We have gravity, we have climate, we have clients, uh, we have money. Mm. And all these things, when we're, we're, we're juggling these, these things, and there are, there are many choices. Some of them are visual, some of them are spatial. But the act of, of I'm trying to works. I don't think it's creation. Everyone's kind of absurd with kind of being creative, you know, creative fucking industries. Yeah. Kills me. <laughs> just, a, just a misnomer for, for late capitalism. Um, but but, but that, that moment when you're, 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 you're asking these kind of big questions and then you're, you're making propositions, it's quite different to looking, the act of looking. Yeah. And when I was a student, I was really aware. I was being told to look and I was like, okay, I don't mind looking. That's good. And then I was told that the things you looked at had to become the project. And the bit that I disagreed with my teachers there, I said, well, what if you looked at something and you generate an idea and the idea you generate is bad? Wouldn't it be bad to make a building from a bad idea? Yeah. And then it was many years later and it was maybe through a connection with a friend who's friends with all the whispers but yet friends with all the poppers. That's Tom Anderson. Oh, yeah. Six Yeah. And Tom learned to look from Richard Wentworth, you know, Richard Wentworth kind of, yeah. his, his, his way of looking is just kind of, it's extraordinary. It's that, that ability to notice the infra-ordinary, mm. that's a parochial term, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, there is, there is kind of magic kind of everywhere. We could find it in this room, some Richard Wentworth moments. Tom's relationship, this, to go back to this kind of idea, what's the relationship between looking and seeing and proposing and Tom kind of, it was through a number of conversations that I realised about how, how, how they work with ideas, that they, they, the ideas were important for as long as they were useful. Yeah. 
and then you kind of you can dispel them. And I think that's no, I think that's something Jack Herzog is absolutely amazing. He's he's this is something Jean Paul Jacot had said about about Jack Herzog. You know, you know he's quite happy to throw away a, 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 an idea if it doesn't work. Mm. You know, you don't say like, I spent all this time looking at stuff. So the way that Tom I think kind of taught me to look a bit more, which was that you you don't know when you're going to use stuff, and yet it's always fun in life to. Mm. You know, it's it's enriching to to begin to understand the world, the nuance of the world around you, and then you don't know when you'll use it. Now, I found this when I'm designing now. That I mean, because I've been kind of, I suppose, looking sometimes through the camera. Looking through the camera can not be looking sometimes, mm -hmm. and the looking happens afterwards. Mm -hmm. But I try to look before I take a picture. That's kind of different to the act of most people taking a picture now. You know, you, some people take a picture automatically because of the uh, the camera phone. We should actually say the phone camera. Yeah. Um, but you know, the speed of and you can throw that. You can put that into the public realm very, very quickly. This idea of using the camera as a kind of tool for for looking, and sometimes I could say I don't even need to take the photograph, and the photograph's almost been taken in my head because I've I've seen what I need to record. Because your compositions are incredibly precise, but they have an informality. Yeah. How, how do you work that way? I, mean, uh, I, I think that's what one always is trying to do is find a kind of voice. Um, part of this trajectory of was, we've, we're saying, you know, the original question, how did you get where it is now? I mentioned now, you know, the people that I originally collaborated, I mentioned people I've known like the Smithsons, I mentioned Tom, who I collaborate with regularly, you know, we talk yeah. about things. And I should also mention uh, Gerd Brendeland uh, from, from Trondheim in Norway, someone I regularly kind of talk about architecture and the world around us, and Sam Devoch, who works okay. with Zimmer. These are people who I kind of regularly, uh, you know, we talk, we talk about far more than than architecture, I mean, whether it's literature or art practice or environmental issues, whatever, we can, you know, or politics, we, you know, it's about, in a kind of very difficult world, finding the, the space to kind of exchange ideas. It's a world that's, that's, that's kind of disappearing, actually, right? I think, and it's fundamentally important. It's a generous act, because no one's getting paid, you know? Yeah. And so, so these things are, are really, really kind of fundamental for kind of continuing kind of growth. This issue about when I, when I have to design, most of my ideas come from outside of architecture. I mean, Duchamp is kind of like, I could, yeah. I can go, <laughs> I can, I mean, he, he generated so many ideas which didn't have a formal resolution, therefore they're, they're paradigmatic because his ideas can be used by other people. Yeah. I, there's a way of kind of, 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 of kind of visual clues in, Kind of ordinary things that you find, and if you record them well, you have an ability to kind of to kind of transform them and remake them in the world. Um, so much of so much of that process is less about looking than it is about recognizing, or mm. that that ability to initially recognize, but then to recognize that that thing is now something else, which is a different kind of self-critical. And strangely, in our office, we use the camera for that a lot mm. because the camera gives you a distance and a couple of weeks later, you look at the image. Yeah. And actually, sometimes it's when you're verbalising what's in the image 
to your partner. So it's the conversation and the abstract thing helps you kind of summate something that recognizes something essential in that that helps, well, for our sake, move forward. Now, do you use your camera in work process when you're designing or...? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for pragmatic things like photographing the model, yeah. I, in a way, it's sort of perfect so I can sort of put it in context. I mean, I, I, I can draw on a computer, but I can't do kind of complex renders, but I can... Model. I can model it and I can make something look as convincing as anyone's rendered by devices like that. But certainly, I mean, there are, there are, there are ways. Going back, sorry, you did ask about my, my photography, which I didn't quite answer this, this, this kind of precision. And I'm saying with all these, these, these kind of friendships with, and collaborations with architects, um, there was another, there was another apprenticeship. Another apprenticeship was with Burton Hellebacher. And then very particular, I think, with Thomas Struth, but also Michael Schmidt, Eggleston, a little bit, and so on. And I think it was, there is a kind of, it's very difficult to understand, to, to discuss this, this work without giving a far more kind of ground to it. But these photographers, I think there was, in, in the Beckers, what I most liked was, I suppose, the kind of very kind of powerful kind of melancholy, mm. which was joined together with a kind of this absolute kind of precision. They kind of reinforced each other. Yeah. It's like you knew this melancholy was meant not a byproduct yeah. because everything else is so precise in their recording. And it also made them took me to kind of look at other forms, I mean, to really look at them, to begin to appreciate. That's something I'm going to speak about in tonight's lecture. Um, Strangely, you know, I've reached the age of 50 and my favourite building type is a cooling tower. <laughs> you know? uh, and it's, it's uh, not a water tower, a cooling tower. They are, they're, they're very beautiful form. They use kind of nature in a very kind of clever way to turn, to change the temperature of water from hot to cool, just gravity and surface area. Mm. And they're beautiful inside. They're all like churches. Um, uh, I, I would make a... I would make a school trip for every school child to walk inside a cooling tower and look up. It's more beautiful than Peter Zimter, I tell you. Yeah, yeah. And um, I can imagine. but yeah, so there. But so the, their precision, I was interested in. Um, I was interested in just the idea, you know, this is just a camera, you know, a denial of artistic will, which is a great assertion of mm -hmm. artistic will, mm -hmm. the confidence to just kind of go. I'm going to put the camera in the most obvious place and do nothing more. You know, I'm just going to frame it up. Have you it. Mm -hmm. And I like that. I like the modesty of that act, but also the arrogance of it. Yeah. It's both. Yeah. 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 And then you become into um, a kind of, I like human beings. I like, I, I think it was Tom Emerson who once um, talked about London to me as kind of cracks in leather. Mm -hmm. You know how a briefcase becomes really beautiful after it's... Yeah. Yeah, it's being lived in. Yeah. And I kind of liked that. I liked the, the, I thought it was that moment of taking pictures of a Humstone tent and there were these socks in there. So I realised there was something about human beings being kind of imperfect, uh, architecture sometimes being perfect, a mismatch between intention and what's achieved. And being kind of quite, kind of happy to record those imperfections. Now you've got to work with a quite sophisticated architect to represent their work when it's not at its best. Yeah. And this is sometimes a kind of um, a conflict 
for me, working kind of to kind of commission, uh, which I think is absolutely there for a designer, which is you know how much uh, you know your responsibility as an architect is beyond the responsibility to your client immediately. It's to posterity. It's yeah. to the city. Um, it's to future generations, and the the kind of there's also an issue about your since you've got a kind of knowledge base, you want to be able to assert your will because you think in a situation you know the best thing to do. In a similar way to a doctor might have to make a a, a diagnosis and you trust their decision making. Well, architects aren't like doctors. We don't need architects like we need doctors. But there has to be something. The best buildings you feel, I think you feel the architect's will yeah. in, in, in them. Yeah more than the clients will. Um, when you have a very strong architect and a very strong client, I mean, a very good recent example of that is, uh, is 6 A Studio for the Young and I mean, you could end up with a fucking masterpiece. That's what, you know, if it really works. And the big, the, the whole issue about, about that working process was kind of mutual respect and autonomy. Yeah. And of Jürgen saying to Tom, you know, fuck Tom, you know, what, what are you asking me what I want, you know? <laughs> but isn't that interesting? Because while you, well, I agree with you about the architect's will, but it is the it is the act of the ultimate sophisticated architect, I think, to understand how to embrace the contingency that yeah. necessarily comes to bear with our work. I mean, Tavares says that the only certainty architects can hold fast to is contingency. And isn't it interesting that? I was thinking about the Teller Studio last night, actually, just completely by coincidence, and in com- in conjunction with Jornico by Peter Merkley, that kind of collaboration between him and Josephson, and a similar conversation, non-conversation, autonomy, trust situation there, producing another very. I think. I think. I think. I think they're they're they're, they're kind of special moments. I think the issue about kind of uh, you know that architecture is contingent is is really important. It's also born very often out of compromise. And yet this is why I think it's important to, you know, as a as a photographer I was talking about finding a voice, I think it's important for an architect to have a voice. Yeah. So maybe it's not the assertion of the architect's will that's the important thing. It's maybe that there is a kind of residue of that that voice in the, build, in the building. Some of the buildings I've mentioned, up in Lord Murray Jose's house, Frank Geary's house, and buildings that they built for themselves. <laughs> yeah. So I think the issue kind of autonomy, and that comes around then, I suppose, with what I was talking about with my practice, which is that kind of issue of kind of kind of compromise. I think we have to kind of compromise, but I enjoy it when people don't. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes I don't, and sometimes I do. And one of those things that, that, that makes my pictures maybe different to others is that, that I most often record in flat light. Mm. Um, and some you know, practices can have an absolutely accidental kind of problem with that. It's not that I, I don't know photographing. There's a certain kind of banal blue sky which I find very, really commercial, really unthoughtful. I think you know, we've had some incredible light over the last two days. This has been a glorious moment in winter light. 
with the kind of cirrusy clouds like mist to photograph those, and yet that can be romantic. But the kind of the matter of fact way for me is I turn up to a job and the weather is the weather. Yeah. And they say, you know, DRDH's project, which I wrote about, is a, a collaboration with Jean de Velde's office, um, uh, a guy who'd been Belgian. And I write that kind of early on the Eurostar with Daniel to say, and it was as grey as Belgian day as you can imagine. And I show it, and everyone's kind of like, I've seen other pictures of it taken by a local photographer in Sunshine. I'm like, why didn't you photograph it in Sunshine? Well, I was there when it was diffuse. And I was actually very happy when it was diffuse because I realised that the quality, the way this, the white brick of the building, the very kind of, um, the very strong urban qualities of the buildings, they understood how it would be seen from a number of different contexts in the, in the town. I think DRDH, I think Lynch Architects, another one of uh, two London practices who whose strongest card is their kind of understanding of, our, of, 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 of the architecture. They're, they're very well detailed, they're good internal organisation, they're, they're mostly understood as city buildings. Yeah. And, that, and that kind of urban, and the, the idea about how they organise the space around the building, which is the most neglected part of, 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 of the most neglected part of architecture uh, due to modernism. And, also, and, and we've kind of lost that with the privatisation of space and really having that conversation about how we make conversation between two sides of the street, uh, how we resolve the space at kind of, kind of ground level, and how buildings are seen from a number, how they speak yeah. to a number of parts of the context. This is, this is what Tony did, you know, this was the lesson of the Listen Gallery back then. This was the lesson when no one was doing it, which was able to say, how could it speak to its context? No, it's, it's true, and it's interesting that both those practices you mentioned also play with kind of figuration in urban form to a certain extent, a certain theatricality without it ever becoming... It's a kind of a dignity to do with the urban experience, which is not one to do with the expression of ego. It's a separate sort of uh, agenda. And it does... I, it's interesting that we keep oscillating back to Fretton. It makes me wonder when he's going to get his Riva gold medal because his influence has been so profound. I don't think it will. I don't think it will. But one is that, you know, Tony was perceived by many to kind of be as difficult. And often difficult equals principled. Yeah. And most of the time it was Tony being principled and sometimes he was difficult. And yet he can also... He's incredibly charismatic and could charm a planning committee like... <laughs> No one else, you know. The climate is a serious, is a serious architect, and yet, you know, the the the, the RBO medals, you know, they're more about sort of spectacle than than a kind of. I, I think I think Tony's trajectory has been kind of too kind of slow and too austere, and yet he's cited by so many. Yeah, in the same way that the Swiss Society yeah. has so many. You yeah. know. I mean, I think Tony's influence goes way beyond his buildings. I mean, it's interesting, Tony's teaching now, he's just kind of, I suppose he's, um, he's always talked about the difference between the architect as a practitioner and the artist as a practitioner. And the, the architect he argues is a generalist, mm. and that... The artists are able to be specific, mm. have that focus. Now, and then he's kind of talking now about kind of general kind of practice, sort of saying that within the current economic climate, the city is like you know you just have to you, you almost have to kind of like get all these skills and 
be able to design quickly and deal with every kind of part of that contingent kind of process. Um, and that's where sort of Chinese, and now and I do understand that. Um, but I still think that the, both through his buildings and through many of the essays he wrote and some of his teaching at the time, I think he, he set an example for a generation of London-based architects looked to, to kind of follow. He created kind of a, a paradigm, and by a paradigm would mean that something that not only is kind of new, new knowledge, but allows others to continue with that work. Yeah. And I think he, whether consciously or not, he, he certainly did that with the, the, the lesson. This idea of kind of Britishness, um, which is kind of quite interesting about kind of London, you know, you have that conversation with a man from Dublin. What's really interesting, some people have noticed the most kind of English of architects there are actually 6A, which is really funny because, you know, Tom's, uh, Tom was a French citizen brought up in Brussels. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and employs people from all over Europe. And yet there is this kind of way, this will mean if you soak up the culture, you can kind of become more local than the locals. That's the, yeah, and it's... It's like Gary being, he's Canadian. He's more LA than anyone in LA, right? Exactly, and I think that that's the interesting ambiguity about territorial reality today. And so one doesn't, well, personally, as a European, I'm less interested in the nation state, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I am interested in the territorial architect yeah. as having value in the context of a European yeah, yeah. culture. And I agree completely that if we call it Britishness, call it Englishness, that there is a line of highly erudite, light-spirited, sometimes it gets called eccentricity, but it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually a, a kind of a complete human deployment of skill that I can see in Sohn or in Lutyens or in yeah. um, the Smithsons, as you discussed, and in others, that is of this place, right? It, it, it doesn't exist in, in other places. And that's actually very difficult for a prevailing culture to digest, right? So Lutyens was difficult to digest, the yeah. Simpsons for a long time were difficult yeah. to digest. And it, I think there, there, were, um, there were a series of ax axiomatic sentences on conceptual art by Sol Wick. And the basic premise of all these sentences is that you're allowed to start with intuition. Yeah. <laughs> but whatever you can pull from the air, you, it has to go through incredibly kind of rigorous process. It has to be the idea has to be enacted with absolute rigor. Yes. And I and I, I really like you know, I'm a man who kind of once ran discos, you know. Yeah. So I do appreciate that the city is not all about kind of, you know, like sort sort of aping the Swiss. Yeah. It's kind of a strange notion that we should we should be kind of serious in that way. We're not I mean kind of London's a kind of dirty city. This is my kind of big problem with with all this kind of hype, yeah. I mean, I know the requirement for density and so on, there's a lot of people moving to London. But this, you know, these theories of, you know, the city roads, city roads has been destroyed. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a number of kind of concepts are really being destroyed by, I mean, I think you could, back in the day, a kind of council tower, you could kind of see up to sort of nine, ten stories. And point block, which went a bit further, mm. you could just about capture the yeah. 18th floor 
from about the seventh floor you can kind of hear the street still it's interesting it's about and what you can see and then as soon as you kind of lose all contacts with and then you just see it as a kind of god you know this, all you're seeing is kind of horizon yeah which is a landscape understanding and a studio understanding yeah. So these buildings, both from the point of view of the inhabitant, but also what they do, both, because of the wind that comes off them, because of the light, but more than that, it's just about, does this thing feel it belongs? And this kind of permission for, you know, we're doing something which is kind of anti-city. Yeah. And there are these, the, there is something actually quite British about London, even though it's absorbed every single language and culture and cuisine. Yeah. And we're a metropolis. More than half the people who live in London were born outside the United Kingdom. Yeah. And I'm really proud of that. Yeah. And it's unique in Europe for that. Yeah. But, but it's incredible. And yeah, it's just kind of this weird 19th century grain that we still have and generally operate in. Um, and then I think the, the kind of idea of the estate uh, particularly the kind of council estate, I think there is a real, there's been a real shift over the last 20 years. And a lot of it is because with the value of land, uh, people like me and my wife, you know, we ended up living in a council estate in a council house. And then that kind of rich mixed tenure, I think, has really kind of helped go along. But I, I've seen many people outside of architecture change their, you know, it started with the Barbican. Yeah. And then they suddenly say, oh, kind of Goldfinger, that's interesting. And then they kind of say, well, actually, a lot of these local authority blocks are, are really well designed. Mm. They have beautiful spaces outside them. And you'll, you know, there is something, when you move to that scale of architecture, uh, and when you deal with the kind of imperfection of human behaviour, it's always going to be a kind of very nuanced thing which allows... A, a kind of an estate to work or not yeah and sometimes it's a management issue sometimes it's just about everyone gets sunshine coming in their window in the right way in the morning and it makes people feel better about their lives you know yeah these things are, are, are just kind of kind of kind of nuanced it's, it can be sometimes about the, the construction mode that was used at that time in history about whether it is kind of physically kind of comfortable but yes well visually comfortable for people and I think concrete has become more visually comfortable for a larger group of people over time I think there's a there's a big kind of shift in I mean brutalism is god it's almost fashionable now yeah and slightly not interrogated enough in in, in terms of that yeah. it's become a kind of a blog centric yeah, it can, you, can, you can probably file it together. It's so close to ruin porn. Yeah. You know, it's a kind of, it's, it's a kind of blog saying, Simon Henley's, I'm not, he's doing a book for Thames and Hudson, that's, that's maybe right. so that the blogtastic people will buy, buy it as a Christmas present. I mean, it's interesting about that, and yet Simon's trying to, I've, I've, I've given quite a few of my pictures of things I've recorded when I've, you know, when I'm sent somewhere. Most of my kind of personal photographs aren't taken because I got loads of money and said I'm going to make a trip to somewhere and I'm going to go to China and <laughs> make pornographic pictures of people in factories. I'd never do it anyway, or I'm going to go to Dubai or whatever and turn down shoots in all these places. But it's when I've been asked to be somewhere, I've been in the Arctic and uh, you know, to, to so wait for the hate. stuff, and it's like, well, I'm there, I'm in the Arctic, for yeah. God's sake, how many people get to go to the Arctic, you know, and so on. I mean, I'm in Lagos, I'm in Freetown, you know, I'm, I'm 
and now I've spent a lot of time recently been commissioned doing work in the, the Baltics. Um, but this, 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 this idea of how we kind of process all the stuff we see in the end of music is, is the, the, the most, most important thing. And for London now, it's, it's, uh, I think it's a really kind of sort of difficult moment, actually. Um, but I'm very enthused by uh, our mayor, Sadiq Khan. And I think one of the things that is not often mentioned in the histories of modernity is, is it's as much as a history of the language of buildings, which is kind of given as history, or a history of theories which led to a series of buildings. Um, it's also this messy thing called urbanism. Yeah. It's the kind of actual kind of facts of, of, of this urbanism. And part of that, which I think I really got involved with, was traffic engineering. Yeah. And I think the, the, the bigger kind of issue is, is for all cities, which is some knowledge about kind of air quality, but the kind of, you know, the ownership of, of a city by the people. Uh, I think we need to really kind of question the car in the city. Uh, Uber hasn't helped that. <laughs> it may, you know, I have many problems with Uber. But I think those kind of things really start to apply pressure to say just in the same way that you know, Google as a search engine is applying a pressure to culture that we've never seen before. Mm. You know? And I see, actually, and this is, I suppose, a big, if, where do I get to where I am? If I say where I am now, and my thesis through accretion, is that through having been exposed to the things I've been exposed to through my photographic work, which, not just taking pictures, but all the things I see in between, you know, sometimes through a train journey or the airport, or staying with people, or witnessing the difficult conditions that many of the people live in the world. I think uh, I accept now at this moment that our world is far more fragile than we once thought it thought it was. And we could talk about that in terms of climate change. I'm not going to mention that for now, but just in terms of uh, being civilized, the, the city as a as a uh, as as a kind of place for civilized kind of behaviour. Mm. By civilized, I mean nice. I mean, I mean, I think like you know, people wearing dragon discos is civilized yeah. as well. Yeah. So I'm talking about a kind of richness. I'm talking about cultural exchange between people of different cultures, incomes, and education. I'm talking about a kind of sharing of wealth. I'm talking about dealing with that's good for human beings every time of their life as a child, yeah. as a teenager, as a young adult, as a young professional, as a mother or father, as someone that is just kind of, you know, and then you kind of, you're supposed to be successful at that moment, mm. you know? I mean, by the time you've done all that, you know how to do quite a few things well. Yeah. <laughs> you should be good. If you're not good by that point, then, then, then there's, there's something lacking here, you haven't concentrated. And then the city's got to accommodate this, and I worry that the um, the lack of kind of sharing of wealth 
um, this is a worldwide thing, and ten percent of wealth has been kind of extracted from the middle classes mm. into kind of an apparitionals of money. This is just a fact about mm. what's happened to money since two thousand and eight. Mm. And and so I kind of I suppose my fear is is that that is is for the the middle class not as a just kind of a kind of thoughtless consumptive separate community from the servants that allow the rest of the city to work you know mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm in I'm fear about I'm, I think this is more fragile I'm, I'm, you know I think London will sadly go the way of Manhattan you know um, well, it kind of, you know, we'll, we'll have high speed too, and it will just be like that's great because that we can just get all the poor people out there, and then we can come down and come quickly into the centre to clean up our shit. You know, this is. I had a shock actually going to Oxford the other day. I went. I got a five forty five train, the first train out of Bethnal Green, and I was surprised it was so packed. I could yeah. hardly get on. Yeah. Um, at five forty five, I don't understand that seven, but I realised it was two thirds um, Central and Eastern European women. Surrounding on the train, yeah, um, you know, and we've just been through Brexit, and these people are kind of cleaning London. <laughs> you know, it's kind of it's amazing, and, and I, it felt like when I see all these things. Actually, when I see these things, I feel that's why I love, I love seeing that there's this in this mercantile city. But in London, all these players, it's amazing to be optimistic and. Strangely, it seems to be all those people from outside of London that are more optimistic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have the same issues as Manhattan in terms of it doesn't have that clear geographic extent. It doesn't have the island. Sure. And it also has a political discourse which is quite at odds with that prevailing culture. So Good. despite the success of sure. the oligarchic class that you're describing, London didn't vote for Brexit and did vote in Cannes. That the space in which to have that conversation where you are barely earning, and it doesn't matter if you're burning, that situation is not the same. So the ability for me to, for instance, be challenged in my understanding of things by someone with a very, very specific agenda, like an artist, is more difficult now. Yeah. Because I won't just meet them on the street, because they're more likely to be in Kent now. I think those that's I suppose what it is, is I think the the that there are but it's always of course in the manner of an urban creature to be kind of pessimistic about their urban environment and I have to be kind of careful of that. But yeah, I've seen many things that I love in London about its grain <laughs> kind of destroyed by the insensitive placement of uh, ov- overly tall buildings yeah. in the wrong place. Yeah. And, and I've seen that this has been the way that kind of procurement works with local authorities effectively taking bribes so that they can build schools because yeah. there's no money coming from central. So I suppose these things are one narrative, and yet there are a narrative that London will always keep is that it's a home for lots of strangers to have a conversation. Yeah. And that's the 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 reason that it's still kind of kind of fucking and I think that also Kingston, you know, um, you know, will understand its point itself as part of London. I've been surprised just walking here this morning, it felt more London actually than, you expected, than, than yeah. suburban. Yeah. I realise actually now that all the suburbs have been swallowed up into the London machine and Kingston's no different. It's probably richer for I think the students to understand 
the kind of forces of the city can be felt a little bit more from Kingston than they could 10 years ago, actually. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think that's very true. So what we're going to do is we're going to wrap it up and we're going to take you downstairs to certain views. Thank you so much for your time, David. Um, well, I'm looking forward to, 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 uh, to uh, seeing the work of your students today. And um, thanks for this conversation. First postcard ever done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Register. In our next episode, we are joined by Professor Teronobu Fujimori from Japan and my colleague here in Kingston, Takeshi Hayatsu. I look forward to you joining us then. In the meantime, please remember to subscribe via iTunes or Acast and to leave your comments and reviews and feedback so we might continue to improve this podcast. Thank you very much.